Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. January 9th marked the 10th anniversary of the first commit to the Elixir repository. Commenting on this, Jose Valim said, I don't consider Elixir to be 10 years old yet, since the project that became Elixir would effectively start at least one year later. But check the show notes for a link to that first commit, which is just a fun little placeholder. To commemorate the occasion, Jose Valim wrote a blog post that looks back over those 10 years and shares how far we've come together. He then turns to the future and shares where he sees things going and what excites him. And continuing on with Jose's hints and teases about what he's excited about and been working on, he's finally given a name to this secret project, saying, We have also been really hard at work over the past two months on a project called NX that has the potential to bring Elixir to areas that were not explored in depth before. And pointing out that he will be presenting about this in February at the Lambda Days 2021 conference. That's an online conference from the 16th to the 19th of February. And in one more Jose Valim-related news item, Jose Valim announces that he has joined the remote team as a technical advisor. And when I asked him for clarification on what does that mean and how does that affect his role being with Dashbit, he answers, being a technical advisor is completely orthogonal to Dashbit. And to think of it as any other advisor role that people have at startups, like if Paul Graham is the advisor at your startup, it means some key people like the CEO and CFO have a direct contact line to him. So that's just exciting because he talks about how the team remote is in good alignment with what Elixir values and what he values, and he's going to be an advisor to them as they continue their startup journey. And the next news item, jumping into code, is around XUnit improvements coming in the next version. A small change has been pushed to XUnit that will be part of the next release. A change was added that when XUnit prints out at the end of your test run how much time was spent in the test suite, it will include a breakdown of that time on how much time was spent in async tests versus synchronous tests. And the documentation has been updated to help people interpret what that means and and what they should do with that information. The goal being to show developers how much time could be gained by focusing on async tests whenever possible and to minimize how much time is spent in synchronous tests. Additionally, another feature that was added to XUnit is the ability to use control plus the backslash key combination on Unix-like systems in a terminal. This sends a sigquit message and XUnit catches a sigquit message and prints out the tests that were running at the time. This can be really helpful if you've ever have a hung test. And this is the first time I ever learned that I could use control plus backslash. So that's cool too. And finally, a big one to check out is the ElixirConf 2020 videos have been released publicly. Check a link in the show notes for a link to the YouTube playlist that includes all of them grouped together. So those are up. Go check them out. And that's it for the news. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by two special guests. Today, we have Oleg and Tsink. And I'm going to have you guys explain your full names uh, because I'm just not going to do them justice. I'm excited because you guys have worked together and you're doing a library and kind of information around uh, web crawling with Elixir, which I think is a really interesting topic. 
I'm excited to talk about it. So before we jump into that, maybe you guys can tell us a little bit about yourselves first, like where you live and what kind of work you're doing. Okay, let me start. Uh, my name is Oleg Tarasenko. Uh, currently, I'm working from Stockholm, uh, from Sweden. I'm a software developer at Erlang Solutions. And originally, I have arrived from Ukraine, from Kiev. I'm working in Sweden for two years already. Uh, right now, I'm mostly doing Erlang and Elixir projects, uh, which are sometimes related to scrapping. But in the past, uh, I was working in another company called Scrapping Hub, uh, which uh, is an own player in the world of uh, web scrapping. So I've got most of the knowledge there. And uh, sometime in the past, I was exploring Elixir as a system to understand if I can uh, accomplish some uh, some t- some goals with uh, help of Elixir instead of uh, Scrappy, for example. And uh, that that was the reason why Crowley uh, was created. So briefly, that's a short story. <laughs> So for me, I'm a, I'm an independent uh, consultant based in Singapore, and I run on the side a side project called Pillowskin, which is um, uh, analytics, uh, cosmetics analytics software uh, that is entirely built in Elixir. And what the, it does is that it basically takes your cosmetic products and analyzes it for the, its ingredients, and it relies a lot on web scraping. And so that's where Crawley comes in. Uh, because I leverage Crawly a lot for integrating with my data pipelines. And so right now it's, uh, it's a, in a very early stage and I'm actually building the, uh, MVP of the final product, which should be scheduled to release soon, but I, there's no, currently no deadline yet. And so, uh, that's basically what I do on a daily basis. I do independent, uh, contracting work and, uh, I work on PillScan on the site. Oh yeah, I, I should probably talk about my the name pronunciation. So it is uh, Li Ziling, which is Chinese. But uh, usually for people that can't pronounce it well, uh, I just tell them to call me Zing, like the metal. Which is helpful for me because I tried to do it properly, you know, imitating him and it just, it didn't work so well. So Zinc with a soft C is kind of the way I'm working off it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> awesome. So uh, Zinc... Do you have a link to your website that you could like to include? Uh, yep, yeah, is uh, pillowskin.com. And for my uh, personal blog, which I usually get my uh, consulting gigs from, it is uh, .com, uh with a double I. I'd love to hear from both of you about how you came to Elixir and maybe uh, some of your experience with Elixir, like how long you've been using it. I have started working with Elixir back in 2017, uh, I think. I have jumped in from the Python project. Uh, there was a case that we had, uh, we had two teams. Uh, we had the Python on the back end, which were preparing the data. And we had Erlang on front end, uh, which was uh, serving the high load, uh, the high load concerns. And basically at some point, uh, it was hard to find Erlang developers. So I have, I, I had a chance to learn the new language and I had a chance to join the team and I took that chance and was quite happy about it. And soon enough, uh, the team have started to introduce some services 
uh, based on Elixir, as soon as the languages are quite similar. And uh, technically for me, it was as simple as taking the Elixir crash course. Well, not very simple, but it was a starting point. And uh, well, at that time, my journey have started. For me, my experience with Elixir is about, I began it two years back. I actually stumbled on it when I was building Pillow Skin. And so my first iteration was of the product was actually in uh, Meteor.js. So, so I, before uh, chancing upon Elixir, I programmed in Python and JavaScript mostly. And for, for those that don't know, um, Meteor.js uh, at that point in time was uh, a full stack Node.js uh, framework. And they basically advocated for MongoDB on the front end uh, in the form of a mini Mongo. So, yeah, so that's how I, I chanced upon it because I decided that that framework was not for me after struggling with it for so long. And so I think I tried to program with that framework for about one year and then I decided I couldn't, I couldn't stand the, the design choices. And so I went searching around for better framework and I found uh, Phoenix uh, and Elixir. And actually, when I, when I learned Elixir, I, I think I went through the, the docs in three days it was like that good. <laughs> the documentation was that good that so I went through it in three days and I could get the hang of it. Uh, and I was able to get up and running uh, from there. So yeah, I have about two years experience with Alexa. So let's jump into this topic and then we can learn more about how you guys came together to work on this too. But first, let's just talk about like, what is web scraping? Like just to kind of introduce that idea to the listener in case, you know, maybe that they're not too familiar with what it is and how this works. And if it's legal, uh, <laughs> because those questions are normally coming together. As uh, everything can be defined in multiple ways, it is just up to you to find a good definition which suits your needs. I like uh, defining it in the ways that people can understand it. For me, it's just a way to convert the web data to your database. So basically, you see something on the web, and now you have it in your database. As simple as that. I know that some people are separating crawling and scrapping and trying to be very precise in this topic. But sometimes you just need to give simple answers. And simple terms, they usually help people to start doing something. So you are not trying to be very smart. That's my vision. <laughs> Maybe you have other. My perspective on web scraping is that it is about data aggregation. So when you, when you have a business problem or just in general problem you want to tackle and the information is freely available online, web scraping is the answer. <laughs> and that's basically how a lot of value is generated on the internet. So a lot of unstructured data and we structure it through web scraping and through our, our value added processes. That's my perspective. I think most web developers are familiar with the idea of bots, right? Like Google has a bot that will scrape their website and looking for keywords and information so it shows up in search indexes. You know, a lot of web developers are probably aware that there's like the robots.txt kind of file that says, you know, you're just politely asking the robot, don't go here, don't scrape in this area. Do you think that that's a, a good place to start with kind of thinking about scraping or because it sounds like, you know, we're talking about uh, solving business problems. So I'd love to hear like where you started first web scraping something to solve a problem you had. Let me tell a short story about uh, about Crowley from the recent experience. 
we had a project, a machine learning project, where we had to train a neural network. Basically, back in 2019, it was not that hard to build a neural network. You just had to use TensorFlow. And it was a big shock and surprise for me that with five lines of code, you can have like 100 layers neural network. But the real challenge was to train it. And we had several teams working in parallel. My team was able to succeed only because we were able to gather a good training data. At that point, we were trying to classify products uh, based on the images and the copies uh, on the internet. So the idea is simple. Uh, You are getting a product and you are trying to find a good category for it. And uh, what we were building is something like an aggregator site, which would allow you to compare prices on different shops. And the immediate problem there is how do you join the products together? So for example, bad in one website can be uh, called like bedroom accessories or something else on the other side. And technically you need to find a good way to match the products, especially if you are thinking about the scale. Imagine that you are like taking the data from Amazon and you are having millions of items or millions of items. How do you, how do you join them together? So with TensorFlow, we were able to train uh, two neural networks. Uh, one of them was just analyzing images and uh, with 99% of the uh, like success, it was capable for uh, setting up a correct category based on the training set we had. So at that point, I think we have uh, like supplied quite a big training set. So that was the start of, of Crawley. But essentially, um, there are a lot of other uh, areas where the scrapping can be used. And uh, I'm talking quite a bit about it these days, trying to explain and trying to pitch people to use this technology in the Erlang and Elixir community. Because what I'm seeing right now is that normally people in the Elixir and Erlang community wouldn't use scrapping for some reason they are just not using it and that's that's a bit of uh upset maybe because uh maybe because we didn't have or we don't have good libraries maybe because we don't have good documentation maybe because we don't have uh, a cookbook for for recipes how to do things and uh, what uh, i'm trying to do together with think is that we are trying to build something which will be simple and uh, which would have a lot of explanations a lot of documentation and a lot of possibilities to get started yep so um for for my use case of uh, web scraping uh, i use it for uh, the collection of cosmetic data as well as uh pulling data from ingredient database uh, price tracking doing things like uh, forex uh, conversions and so these different sources all have to be tracked and monitored and so one way that I use Crawly is to to schedule these checking uh, of the websites automatically so that I don't have to do it manually every single day. And if you can imagine just how many, uh, like hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, web pages you're monitoring every single day is uh, a bit mind-boggling, especially if uh, you don't automate it, right? So web scraping is like the solution for uh, such uh, data aggregation. Uh, without it, I think it will be... Uh, a, a real challenge because otherwise how, how would you be able to manage to collect all so much data and, and do uh, something with it yeah but Crawly isn't the, the only solution I think like there are many many different frameworks and many many different libraries and I think that 
it, it depends on the business problem or the actual problem they are trying to solve because sometimes a full-fledged framework isn't the right solution. Like sometimes you want just a little part of the framework to maybe crawl a little bit or like a few uh, websites and you don't need everything. You don't need the entire pipelines and something like that. It really depends on what you're trying to solve and you have to really understand the problem they are trying to solve in order to come up with a solution they are trying to, uh, to, to fix it. So in talking about web scraping, and you both mentioned the library Crawly. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a, a, a background and history about this. And I, I think this is how you guys came to find each other on the internet, right? So I'd love to maybe just kind of tell us what Crawly is and, and what it does. Crawly is a framework which simplifies the web scrapping and web crawling. The whole idea here is that um, sometimes it's very easy to get started with something. For example, you can crawl a lot of things with just CURL or WGET or you name it. Every language has a tool. Uh, but the trick here is that uh, in the past, I was looking on many uh, crawling implementations. So if you are looking on the codes, all they are solving different uh, concerns. For example, uh, you can Google and you can find an article how to extract data with Poison and uh, and Floki, for example, uh, from from a given website. But the trick is that uh, this implementation means that you have to write a lot of code. You have to deal with networking. You have to deal with extraction. You have to deal with multiple things. So my idea was simple. I wanted to take good ideas from Scrappy, from Pythonic framework. And I wanted to have a unified way of writing extractors, and I wanted to make the code of extractors very similar and familiar for everyone. So when you are opening and reviewing that code, you are not surprised every time. Like, wow, how that is done? I mean, why, why you are fetching things like that? So I wanted to have something unified, something well documented and something simple to use. So basically, uh, hopefully Crawly is uh, something which allows you to write uh, predictable code and allows you to extract data from the internet with uh, uh, with small amount of efforts. Think what what about your opinion about it? My opinion on Crawly is that it is, I think, the uh, most simple to use and easy to use solution that Elixir has for web crawling. Uh, there are other competing libraries out there like Crawler, I think that's the name, but uh, when it comes to modularity, customizability, and uh, the ease and mental models that you can apply, um, or like uh, in a repetitive way, so so you don't have to really learn a lot of new concepts. You just need to learn that everything is a pipeline. Everything is you just have to learn one mental model, and you are able to get up and running uh, with Crawly. And that is. I feel one of the main selling points of uh, Crawly as compared to other competing frameworks like uh, Scrappy uh, for Python because Scrappy has a lot of, they do have a very advanced uh, crawling framework, but it is not that easy to integrate into uh, your your stack. It is not that easy to deploy. It is not that easy to run just a one-off um, crawling uh, implementation. So, that is the, the main issue that I had when I was evaluating uh, crawling libraries. And that's how I chanced upon uh, Crawly because uh, Oleg was doing a great job <laughs> with his initial implementation. And I thought, oh, I can, I can really uh, add some value to that. 
So one question I'd love to ask then is, you know, because this is a native to Elixir library, I, I assume it's like really leveraging the beam and processes and being able to launch, uh, you know, a particular spider for a like, so I could say, you know, go crawl these 20 websites, and it can do that concurrently. Is that a framework that builds that for me? Or is that something where I need to build that myself and then use Crawly to do like the actual scraping of each website? Yeah, so basically, uh, that's expected. So we have a way to control the concurrency. In most of the cases, you have to limit concurrency because otherwise you are just bound by a target website. That's what normally would happen. And uh, Crawly itself uh, allows you to limit concurrency by the amount of workers you are starting by, per spider. So the idea is simple. You are just configuring how many workers are allowed to to work with this site. And uh, every worker has a delay. And basically, if you want to go faster, you need to add workers. If you want to go slower, you need to remove workers. However, at this stage, uh, we didn't have any need to remove workers, at least uh, not uh, at uh, this point. One of the uh, points which I wanted to highlight comparing to Scrappy, for example, because in the past I was working with creators of Scrappy and I know the framework quite well, is that it is quite good and uh, like bulletproof. But one of the things is that it is quite hard to orchestrate your uh, crawls. So, for example, if you are approaching a large target and you want to distribute your work across several machines, then this machinery uh, on the Python side is extremely complicated. And I always had it in mind that with Elixir and with its native distribution, we can make it like simple. And one of the ideas uh, which I'm currently trying to work on is a distributed crawling. Uh, so the idea is that you can have multiple workers and you can distribute a load between them. So it's kind of done seamlessly. That's what I wanted to add. A lot of the data that sounds like that you guys were crawling originally is public data. You know, it's publicly available. That's not behind a, a, a login or authentication. But I imagine there are situations where you do need to crawl web data that is behind a login. How does Crawly help solve that problem? Uh, right now, we have uh, an implementation of uh, automatic cookies management, uh, which is all about obtaining a session cookie and then passing it to all uh, next requests. Unfortunately, comparing to Scrappy, for example, Scrappy can do login automatically. You are just like providing credentials and it will find a login form and login. When it comes to uh, Crawly, you have to do it manually for now. But one of the ideas is that we can just copy that functionality from Python and we can add it. However, right now, it doesn't seem that we had a lot of demand to do it. And uh, that's why I decided not to uh, work on it right now, because uh, it's better to defer tasks like that before you will get real uh, real use cases from people who are asking about it. So right now we have an example. We are showing how it can be done. And yeah, that's, that's the case. Also, if the data is under the login, it doesn't mean that it's not publicly available. It's still publicly available, but just kind of under the login. Technically, you are still owning this data. When we are talking about uh, 
extracting this data under the login pages, it's not something illegal. It's not something uh, which uh, cannot be done. And technically, you can uh, find a lot of solutions on the internet. Uh, we decided why not to have our own solution for that. So you're bringing up there the whole point about legality. And I imagine there are inappropriate or illegal uses that something that would be a violation of terms of service for a different website that I might be trying to get information from. How do I approach this? Like, what is legal and what is not legal, as you guys see it? And like, because I realize that you're both, you know, in Singapore and in Sweden. So you have different, you know, there's different laws that might be governing you. So like, kind of how do you approach the question of what's legal and what's not? Sometimes legal issues can bite you. It may be visualized in several ways. One of the ways, uh, for example, which we have experienced is that uh, you are getting an abuse report on the name of your hosting provider and you have to shut down your activities within like 24 hours. In our case, we even had to migrate all our infrastructure from one data center to another one, which was a bit of a pain especially if you will uh, look on it in the context of current uh, case uh, in the United States, when, for example, Amazon just decided to kind of shut down a social network and just switched off all the servers to answer. I'm not a politician. I don't want to, to go into the debate. But from my point of view as an engineer, you need to understand how to work in the way that you are not locked in like this vendor sort of relations. So you need to be able to migrate from one service to another, and you need to design your applications so that it's possible to do that. In our case, uh, we were lucky enough to run system on uh, Mesos and, and Docker. So it was just a day of work to migrate to another platform. Right now, Mesos is not that oftenly used, uh, but Kubernetes came uh, instead of it. So just a bit of a context. Another form of uh, the legal issues uh, may be in a form of the uh, court cases. And uh, we had an incident with one of the biggest social networks for professionals. And basically what have happened is that we've got like a case and we, uh, according to the court, we had to pay quite a bit of money for every crawl. However, uh, because there was another company called Haikyuu who also had a case against LinkedIn, we were just following their case. So our case was kind of reviewed afterwards. In general, it's a way too painful because uh, when a giant can uh, kind of create a low case against you, a small company, for example, somewhere in the world, and if it happens in the US, you have to pay a lot of money for lawyers and other things. However, that particular case against the Haikyuu, it didn't prove that LinkedIn was right and the decision was made in favor that uh, basically it's still possible to extract data from it. However, to add, LinkedIn is known for uh, quite uh, intensively protecting their data. When we were touching this concern, they had at least four layer of like analysis and security. So it was not a simple target to approach. Interesting. Yeah, we've included a link in the show notes uh, to an EFF article talking about that legal case in from 2019. So if you are interested in pursuing any kind of scraping of anything at any kind of scale, something at least to be aware of. So it's a good article to take a look at. I just wanted to add that what happens is that sometimes 
people are trying to prevent activities using their like money and using their uh, power. However, the internet, the entire internet is built with technologies and scrapping itself is a key there. For example, no modern internet can survive without uh, search engines. Funny enough, nowadays LinkedIn is trying not to allow uh, crawling as well, but they have started their project with scrapping a couple of college websites. So basically, nowadays, as soon as you have money and power, you can try to kind of uh, kill your competitors. However, the thing is that the data analysis is just a topic and you cannot prevent something from just happening. It's a technology and uh, people are going to use it and you cannot simply kind of ban a technology. It shouldn't happen. Zink, do you have anything you want to add to that? Even though the court case proved that uh, web scraping behind authentication is uh, illegal, I think you should always uh, be aware that there is always a reason why there is authentication that the webmaster put it there. And it's, it's there for a reason. And so if they have reason to protect it, there's always many, many methods that they can use to try and limit your ability to extract the data, uh, whether it is by forcing you to put up a, a full-fledged browser in order to scrape the data or having a, like a JavaScript uh, logic to check if you are a bot or not. Like sometimes the targets, even though they are of high value, but the barriers put forth before you may not make these targets uh, that valuable after all. The point here, which slightly contradicts this opinion, if we will think about LinkedIn, the data there, which is under the authentication, doesn't belong to LinkedIn. And when I am putting my CV on LinkedIn, it does mean that I want probably does mean that I want my profile to be noticed and I want to get some offers. And what happens here is that someone who doesn't own my data technically tries to protect it. And if you think more about it, what happens is that what they are doing instead, they are selling this data. So basically, it's quite a complicated question. I mean, yeah, they are trying to like pretend that they are owning the data, but they do not. And uh, if I will ask you, why do you have your profile there to be to have it published on LinkedIn? Well, who cares? You want to have like offers, you want to have it visible on the net. And previously, before the social network was introduced, people had uh, their own websites. That was the idea that, okay, it's a simplified version to run it without like a need to update your your resume. But it's all about this. It's not like uh, a data owned by LinkedIn. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective there. The data is public because it like in the LinkedIn example, um, I'm choosing to voluntarily put my data in there because I want it to be seen and found. It is an interesting question. And so it's something like, you know, it will it will be unique to each individual case that you look at. For sure. It's pretty nifty that Crawley is able to, well, you know, browse browse the web, get basic HTML, at least in my head, it gets basic HTML, what servers actually sent. But I know that there's a lot of websites that are complex JavaScript, you know, rendering engines, Ajax, you know, after the initial page load. How does Crawley interact with those kinds of pages with uh, interactivity on the page or heavily involving JavaScript to render anything? We are approaching to this problem with the help of uh, pluggable fetchers. So technically, the simple fetcher uh, which is normally used is uh, HTTP poison. 
but as soon as I have arrived from Scrapping Hub in the past, uh, I were just using an open source tool built by that company called Splash, which is a very lightweight Qt implementation of the JavaScript renderer. And I have uh, made a separate uh, fetcher which uh, uses Splash to render JavaScript. Splash itself has a lot of possibilities to tune uh, how do you render pages. And it, for example, allows to execute some arbitrary JavaScript or Lua code, like to implement some browser automation. However, this is quite a basic way of getting this IAX data. And as it was mentioned by Tsink, in lots of the cases, you would have to uh, rely on real uh, browsers. And uh, that's one of the uh, goals which we would have to accomplish. But right now, we had other priorities, and that's why uh, we haven't integrated uh, Crawly with any sort of headless chromes or, or puppeteers or anything like that yet. But still to be done. That'd be interesting um, uh, when and if you guys get there, because... <laughs> I mean, that intersects with a lot of like other areas too, not just about crawling websites, but like that's the whole point of uh, some feature testing or integration testing, things like Wallaby or Hounds that are just testing your own website <laughs> and trying to render it. So it'd be interesting that, yeah, when you do get there, um, if there's some uh, shared logic even, like some something that would be shareable with the testing community, just trying to test end to end. That is uh, actually uh, some things that we have been discussing on the uh, issues uh, discussion threads. And so uh, some some ideas that were brought up was uh, using Selenium and, or using uh, Puppeteer to orchestrate the browsers. And uh, although we haven't reached there yet, if you really, really, really want to implement this yourself, you can because uh, the way that Crawly is built is that everything is modular. You can build everything yourself. Everything is like a piece of Lego brick and you can uh, build yourself and put it in and then you will have your very own browser rendering engine. Of course, it won't be uh, fully supported by uh, the Crawly maintainers, but uh, if you really want to do it, you can. And Crawly doesn't prevent you from uh, achieving that goal if you really want to uh, achieve it. I would enforce uh, Tsing's words with the fact that probably for building that you wouldn't have to dig into the Crawly source code because you would have documentation which explains how to do it. I like the idea that no one have to read the source code of the framework you are doing uh, to, to to build their own work. Uh, but that's a side note. I noticed that uh, Crawly is pre 1.0 and I'm curious of what at what mark do you do you two think that 1.0 would be reached for Crawly? What would it take? What's what's lacking in your opinion? It's hard to say. We need to agree on it. I was uh, trying to raise this question a couple of releases before, but uh, it turned out that uh, we uh, still wanted to deliver some other things. And at that point, I've realized that maybe it's not that important right now to call yourself 1.0 because that's are just numbers. <laughs> it's more important to kind of respect opinions of other contributors because otherwise they will not contribute and you will be alone and in this case uh, probably your project will die quite soon so that's why it's important to balance things when you are doing open source and that's why there is no point to hurry up yeah so so as Oleg mentioned uh, I wasn't very uh, <laughs> supportive of uh, his him wanting to bump the the uh, major version 
because that implies that you have to support the older versions. And in Crawley's current uh, form, I don't think that it is truly what we are uh, trying to reach at our vision that we mentioned before. There are still a lot of portions that need to be uh, like uh, ironed out and fine-tuned. Like for example, React, right? They took ages to actually get to major versioning. And in fact, they were just uh, going through minor versions uh, all the way until, I think, 55. And so although it represents that the, the project is still under active development, things may break, but I think that's the reality of, of uh, open source projects. Until we are able to fully reach a point where we can say that, okay, we can maintain this at a reasonable and non-burnout rate, then I think we can bump the major version. Yeah, so that's my perspective on it. Yeah, it's that whole idea of if, if you're wanting to commit to like the Semver model of API stability with like 1.0, then it's like, well, we don't feel like we're ready yet. You know, like we have some breaking changes that are planned. Uh, so it totally makes sense. We'll be monitoring it and, and interested to see when you guys feel like that you've reached that point. I'm thinking now, like if I'm looking at this library and I'm thinking, you know, there are some things I would really like to scrape. There's that occasional auction that I want to just like monitor and then buy something when it happens. You know, like maybe there's the ticket sales that go on sale or something like that. Or maybe I'm thinking of competitors in my space and just wanting to monitor when their prices change. You know, little things like that where I'm not like massive amounts of crawling, but this could be really, it could offer some business value. I'm curious, one, Zink, you've mentioned this idea of business value. Where do you see crawling being a strategic decision or bringing real business value? The business value of crawling, right, is uh, on a case-by-case basis because uh, there's always a larger objective they are trying to to fit uh, web crawling into. Web crawling shouldn't be just done for the sake of, of crawling data. Like, for example, uh, Google does it to to organize the world's publicly available information. And I think that is a laudable goal because uh, otherwise there will be so many things that we, we won't be able to, to, to see or to discover. And when you're trying to solve a business problem, for example, like auction uh, monitoring, it always fits into uh, the web scraping part, always fits into a larger objective and the, the actual end result of your data pipelines. What are you going to do with it? So, for example, you get your price monitoring, then you send out a notification to click buy. And when you actually get it, that is the value that you're getting. Auction monitoring is, of course, a very simple idea. But if you put it on the bigger scale of things, that is where it gets really interesting. Because, for example, you can do uh, like what Honey does. Honey is an extension for trying out uh, discount codes automatically at checkout. What they do is that they, they have an automated web crawling framework to try out all these discount codes for you. And although it is done locally on the browser, it is still the same concept. It is still the same concept of engaging with the website automatically without the user having to do anything. There are always different ways that you can utilize web crawling. Uh, it doesn't always have to be in the, in the form of a server that is making API calls or making uh, HTML calls. We're coming up close to our time, and I want to make sure we have a chance to cover a couple more things before we have to let you go. One is, like, if I'm ready to start with this, and I say, you know, there are a couple websites I would like to start scraping because it would give value to me or to my business, how do I get started? What do I have to do? We have a tutorial and quick started guide. So the fastest way to do is you are just going through the readme, and once it's done, you are getting 
a crawler running and it's as simple as following three steps. Uh, if you are interested in more like uh, a solution, the idea of uh, crawling as a, uh, as a service, as a process where you are getting the data, verifying the data quality and trying to do it properly, then you need to have a tool for scheduling and uh, checking the results. And in this case, I would suggest looking on Crawly UI, a project which is dedicated to this uh, concern. So uh, some tips and tricks for that I can... Uh... I can give for web crawling if you're if you're just starting out is that uh, you need to really learn your CSS selectors and your uh, XPuff selectors. So, um, so CSS selectors, I'm assuming that uh, everyone who has uh, tried out web development should understand uh, a bit of it, but you should get to know it very well. And XPuff selectors are much more uh, higher form and much more advanced uh, version for selecting uh, XML nodes. It is much more expressive and much more, you're able to put much more logic into it. But the thing about XPath selectors for Elixir is that it requires certain libraries that might require a Rust compiler to be installed. So that is one area that uh, you should definitely look at when uh, starting out. Some other areas are also to always respect the uh, webmaster and to not accidentally DDoS them. Always try to rate limit your, your requests because otherwise the site owners will be paying for the bandwidth and they might have to shut down. And you don't want to be <laughs> part of that, right? Yeah, it's, it's not very ethical in a way. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Are there any other thoughts you have on ways that this brings business value? I think that doing monitoring for uh, decision-making indicators is one of the most important things. So... I think we, we talked about it just now, but auction monitoring, that is one of them. That is a decision-making indicator, whether you buy it or not. Things like social media indicators, checking out hashtags, seeing what your competitor is doing, and making sure that you are on par with them or not. Uh, that is all things that uh, you have to do in your competitor analysis and understanding how far you are in the market. And it really determines your, your, your reaction times. Like the the phrase that is always thrown around, right, is that uh, data is the new goal. And it is in a way true, but it is also about how you use that goal that counts. Uh, because in the wrong hands, data is uh, useless. But in the in a truly brilliant person's hands, it can turn out a huge amount of value, like how Google has done and how uh, all the other uh, web crawling solutions have done, like Facebook or, or LinkedIn. You guys both mentioned this idea of like TensorFlow and doing some analysis after I've scraped my data that I've, I've collected data. Do you have any tips on, you know, I've, I've gone out and I've done maybe, maybe I'm thinking of using this for competitive analysis, right? And I want to be able to track all of my competitors, what they're doing. You know, I, I just want something to monitor it for me and tell me, oh, there's a new announcement, a new a price change, a new product offering, something like that. Is there any tips or, or, things that you would suggest for helping to analyze that data? I think you should always look at the scale of what you're trying to do. When it is at a very large and non-manageable scale, you should consider web crawling uh, and using a framework. But if it's like a few web pages, uh, you can definitely do it with a one-off script and you just rerun the script each time you want to uh, refresh the data. You should always consider when you use it on a case-by-case basis you definitely shouldn't use it all the time, uh, regardless of whether it is uh, appropriate or not. 
So an anecdotal story is that an ex-colleague, right, had asked me to scrape, uh, scrape some data from the website. When I actually looked at the data, right, it's easier to just copy and paste everything because if I were to, if I were to write out the script, test the script, and make sure that it works again and again, right, the amount of hours would be non-trivial. But if you were to just copy and paste it, then you'll get it in like less than an hour. And the thing is that he didn't need it again. It was a one-off thing. And this is, this is what happens when you, you don't explain the value of uh, the, like the, the appropriateness of web scraping to business stakeholders because they don't understand the, the use case for it. They don't understand when the technology should be used. And so it's very important to consider the larger picture. Like, are you going to use this data again? Do you need it refreshed? Do you need it to be uh, cleaned and uh, does it have to go through a, a full pipeline for extraction, right? So these are things that uh, you as an engineer, as a prospective engineer, should consider when collaborating with uh, business stakeholders, managers, people that don't fully understand the technology. I like that. It reminds me of a situation I had at my own work that we needed data that existed in a separate system that was an older system, but part of the same company. It was behind uh, authentication and everything. So like our solution was, well, we need to actually get in, you know, log in and scrape it in an automated way. And then we did have to do some cleanup of that HTML that came out to format it so that it could be used in the way we needed it. And like that was one of those cases where it was adding business value to us because we were able to deliver something faster than the other team because it wasn't a priority for them to create you know, an API that could give us the data in the format we wanted. And we were able to solve a problem and web scraping was the tool. And so I think it's a, a great thing that people can just be aware of that this exists and start to see and recognize patterns for where it might be of real value for their organization or them as an individual. So that's great. Are there any other thoughts or anything you'd like to mention before we have to close? Uh, I think there are quite a few startups that all build up on web scraping. So even like, for example, I alluded to Facebook. Facebook began uh, by crawling, the, <laughs> by scraping the different uh, college uh, campuses' uh, websites. There are so many different opportunities for you to, to try and create value for the world. And I think web scraping is one of the hallmark examples of uh, techniques that has been used throughout the ages, over 20 over years. Right, so uh, you should definitely try it out, and uh, maybe you've come up with the next big startup. From my side, I will also add that uh, it would be nice to have more Erlang and Elixir people trying, uh, trying scrapping and trying crawly. I would say that indeed we are uh, like in in this pre version, and uh, it's a product which is built by the distributed uh, team and. Uh, as every product, you should expect uh, side effects. And uh, we are trying to address them quickly, but, you know, uh, the real world is the real world. And I, 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 I'm not uh, a person who thinks that uh, the software we are building doesn't have bugs. Everything has bugs. If you will remove all the bugs from your code, probably you will end with this hello world as the <laughs> result. <laughs> So uh, just give it a try. And uh, if you will find problems, let us know. Also, uh, I think 
if you are just starting out and trying to learn how to really code production level uh, Elixir, I think you should most definitely try and contribute to the Crawly repo <laughs> because it is actually one of the best ways to learn about gen servers and concurrency and uh, how do you manage a queue? How do you manage uh, orchestrating your entire crawler and all your, managing all your processes? If you are trying to learn how to really get good at Elixir and you want to get feedback on your code, for example, through pull requests, then I think it is it is ideal to to really try out um, because actually Crawly is one of the first open source projects that I really contributed to, and I can definitively say that it has made me a better programmer because uh, sometimes when you program by yourself or in a silo, right, you don't get the feedback, you don't get the best practices, and so if you contribute to to open source, although it is yes, it is for free, right, you are not getting paid for it, but in a way, it is art, right? Contributing to to things that you use, that everyone uses, right? Is I think a public good, and everyone should do a little bit of it to to help out. Nice. So that answers the question I had was um, if you guys were looking for and interested in contributors, and it sounds like you are. You're welcome. You're welcoming people to come in and see if they can help identify things and 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 work with you guys, and that you'll be open to that. So that's awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us today. If people want to get in touch with you, or maybe they have more questions about this topic and they'd like to go deeper, what is the best way for them to get in touch? I would suggest using the Telegram channel uh, we have uh, for uh, Crawly developers. It's probably the fastest way to get answers. Um, you can, okay, Oleg always says Telegram channel, but it's actually a Telegram group. So <laughs> you should join the group, uh, not the channel, <laughs> if you want to ask questions and get the right answers. But uh, we are always uh, available through the issue boards. And uh, if there's any bugs that you find, uh, just post it there and we'll get back to you. Well, I was also excited to see, and we have links to all these things in the show notes, but I was also excited to see that you have a Crawly UI demo, uh, which I think is just awesome, you know, to help give the oversight of things like that. Because I think Elixir is especially well suited for jobs like this, where you have workers that are going out and you might even want, you know, potentially want to put a time limit to say, if it takes longer than five seconds, just kill the worker. Things like that, that Elixir is like really good at. I think it's a, a wonderful use. And I have some ideas now because of this conversation of things that I might go try. And so I'll be checking this out. Also check out the way to generate spiders without writing a code. So there is a way to uh, write spider without like really uh, having to code. It's very pre-alpha, but it might be interesting for like a lot of the cases. And that's a whole another story to discuss. Very cool. Well, thank you, Zink, and thank you, Oleg, for coming and joining us. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.